moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another feature episode of Cascading Leadership. This is your friendly neighborhood talent nerd, Dr. Jim. And with me, I have our resident big voice guy co-host. Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, and I couldn't help but start laughing because your introduction is so long. Today, we have yet another feature episode, and this particular episode is going to be focused on how to build effective teams in technical sales. And we're going to talk to talk about that from an end-to-end perspective. And with us, we have our featured guest. Hello, featured guest. Dr. Jim. Yeah. We've known each other for very long. You don't need to call me that. I just I had to do it once. LB, did Jim tell you that we like we were in freshman math together? Oh, no. no. Yes. I have known Jim since he was 14 years old. Wow. <laughs> Actually, I was uh, I turned 13 when uh, when I was a freshman. So I was uh, like a good little Indian. I was uh, ahead of most of my peers that were native born. So there, there's that. But point of fact, I was probably the only Indian that was terrible at math at that entire school. Oh, so it wasn't math class. You were in lunch. It was lunch. I think you sat with our crowd at lunch. Oh, yeah. I'm exceptionally good at eating. Tell us a little bit about I have been in technical sales for going on 25 years now. I have a bachelor of science in chemistry and a master's in business from Marquette. My bachelor's is from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. And I have worked for a variety of the major scientific companies over the years, as well as a couple of startups. And so I have had the opportunity to do sales and marketing and leadership at scientific companies. And it's just really been a joy. We've known each other for forever. And I think what's particularly interesting about your career trajectory is that you went in your undergrad, the hard sciences route, and then you were in technical sales, but technical sales from, I I think a portion of your career has been spent in capital equipment, if I'm not mistaken. And then you had other areas where you're doing product launches within startups. So it's a really interesting sales career trajectory. And I think it brings a unique perspective because you're dealing with high ticket items, a complex sales process, complex deal cycle, deal durations, a lot of stakeholders that you need to bring into it. And in that respect, it's very similar to any other complex sales process. So we're going to break that entire pro- entire trajectory or entire journey down into pieces and really talk about, okay, what are the things that you need to do to build not only an effective team, but navigate that, that complex process effectively? I want to break this down and start at the beginning. Before you can talk about a high-performance team of any sort, you have to start at the front end of the process, which is the recruiting and hiring element of the, of the employee lifecycle. So when you're looking to build out a highly effective sales team, how does that inform who you look for from a talent attraction and hiring perspective? What are, what are some of the things that you've done in your career that's really helped pave the way for that end game or that end goal? of building that great team? That's a great question. First, before I jump in, 
I am required to say that the things that I'm about to say are my opinions and not the opinions of any of my current or previous employers. And I think before you can talk really about a hiring strategy, I think one of the things that is important to do is to define what we mean by technical sales, right? There are people out there with very high tech equipment like yourself in the in your recording booth there. And folks like me might not consider that a technical sale, whereas someone like you might. When we talk about technical sales, we're talking about things that are not commodities or that are very difficult to commoditize. So you are almost never going to start a conversation about price. And so you have to have people that can really articulate the value of a product as opposed to features, the things it can do. And we're very often talking about roles that require some kind of a STEM background, or we're talking about technology that is highly precise and that often requires some kind of an advanced or scientific degree in order to have a real conversation about it or in order to operate it, right? So when I hire people, I actually, I have a formula. I've been doing this a long time now. I've been managing people for almost 15 years and I have a formula and it works. It's worked very well for me. You, we always start out with a degree in a scientific or a technical field. And I don't care how long you've worked for a pharmaceutical company. I don't care how long you've worked in diagnostic sales. I don't care if you've sold to doctors before. If you do not have a science degree, you will not be able to sell what I sell. And so first and foremost, whatever the company is that you're working for, an advanced, at a minimum, a bachelor's degree in the field that touches that technology. In my world, that's chemistry, biochemistry. And so some kind of a four-year degree. We will. I've seen people be successful with food science degrees, those sorts of things, because they do a lot of chemistry. But that's the first thing. And it actually whittles down the pool pretty quickly. And then you have to have people that want to be salespeople or want to work on the business side of things. The number of people who get a four-year degree in science and then decide they want to work on the business side is a relatively small pool. And then in that group of people, you need someone who can articulate complex technologies in a simple way. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that you can have a scientist that wants to buy a tool. They don't know how to use the tool. They know their science and you as the seller know your science. And then you have to be able to relate the two so that the customer can make a decision about that technology. So now you have to have somebody that can explain complex technology in simple terms to someone else who also is very smart and may in fact have a PhD and may in fact have an MD PhD. And if you think PhDs are, are impressed with their degrees, you should meet an MD PhD. How do I get experience? What am I looking for, right? I, if I'm working for one of the bigger companies, I'm putting it out there. I want two to five years of capital sales experience or scientific sales experience plus two to five years on the bench. And when you start to, to put all that together, you wind up with maybe four candidates, maybe. And right now it's really hard to find those candidates. It's a rough, it's rough to hire high quality folks right now with all of the requirements that we have. So if I can't find that, what I'm looking for is someone with a science degree that worked retail in high school or college rather than did undergraduate undergraduate research because retail pays better. 
So it pays better. So you got somebody who probably had to pay for themselves to go to college. So they hustle and they made a decision to be greedy as opposed to scientific, right? So they're already not thinking I'm going to be a scientist for the rest of my life, right? That's what I look for. With a brand spanking new salesperson, I'm looking for a four-year degree in science and something customer facing. Your situation is a little bit unique because of the space that you're in. But if we expand that out a, a little bit and we're talking about technical sales, it could be software, it could be infrastructure, hardware, it could be any anything that involves a multiple stakeholder landscape, a high ticket item that requires multiple people involved in the decision-making process, and you're looking to hire there. When you look at broadening the pool of available candidates, because I'm sure those other spaces have their own constraints in terms of the candidate pool. You were hinting at some of your grow your own strategies, but what are some of the other things that can be done to expand that potential pool of candidates or, or options? That's a great question. And I'm not sure the best way to answer that. If you're talking about a space that is more on the enterprise software side of things, which is actually something that we deal with in our space, we do actually sell enterprise software, then certainly you're going to be looking for you're looking, you could certainly expand the list of educational background, but you would very likely still be looking for something concrete in their resume that indicates that they have the ability to talk about something technical, the ability to bring together large groups of people. I would imagine, I really, I'm not sure, Jim, I've not, outside of my space. Yeah, Karen, I think it's interesting because what you had mentioned, to, to Jim's question, I think was one of those examples of how you do augment, right? So you were saying, for example, the uh, the whole idea and notion of someone that may have a science background, but you're also recognizing the sales. And what I've heard from, excuse me, what I've heard from other companies is that you cultivate the talent, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if your I don't know if your if your cycle allows for that, but I have heard that companies are doing that. So basically, they're building relationships with. Them schools or trades that could create opportunities to bring people into the to the sales environment that could potentially be successful and then they are exercising like assessments to see if there's a capacity for them to I know that there's one that someone has shared with me recently that it's an uh, it's a an app called Rainmaker and so it identifies for students the ability to go out and they will test their sales ability what happens is that like their score will go up and then that allows you to be able to determine what your whether or not it matches the proficiency that you actually need. So in our space, one of the places that we go actually is to our service and our technical support folks, right? So you may come into the organization as a technical support person. So you've got that degree, you don't maybe have a lot of experience, but we put folks on the phone, we put them out in the field with customers and they have more time to find the answer and to learn technology. And you start to learn who the really good folks are in your group. Now, it goes back to that conversation about customer facing, right? So if I have someone with a degree that's working on the technical side of things, and it doesn't matter whether it's at my company or in another company, but they're customer facing, they're doing technical support. They may not be a salesperson, but they're doing something customer facing. So you're looking for the ability to ask the questions about, tell me about that customer that was really difficult And how did you address that? So if they don't have that sales experience, anything customer facing with the degree is what you're going to be looking for. That leads me to another 
question or observation. How do you vet out for curiosity, problem solving, and that sort of capability in a customer facing sense through the interview process? It sounds like that's like central to sales success. So what are some of the things that you've done to fish that out in the interview and selection process to see if this person has the wiring to engage at that level? That's a great question. So it's interesting. I am looking for people who in a first interview come to the interview with a list of questions. When I say, tell me, do you have any questions about this role? And they go, yes, I do. And then they have 10 questions that are really great, thoughtful questions about the customer space, about the market, about our company, because that right there indicates a level of curiosity. When people say, nope, I don't have any questions, that's actually a red flag for me. I do a lot of providing scenarios and I try to provide scenarios for where the candidate lives. They don't have to answer questions about my company. They don't have to answer questions about my products, but I will create a scenario in the space they live and say, okay, so tell me what you would do if you met a customer that had this challenge. And if they immediately jump to, I would ask them some questions. Great. What are those questions? So that's really how you get it. Are they curious? Are they thinking? Do they have the instincts for this job? Those are really important observations that you make. And thanks for sharing that out. I think the other part that I'm interested in getting your thoughts on. So it's not only the aspect of asking questions, it's what kind of questions are you asking? Because there's two ways that you can ask these questions. You can ask a question to point at a product that you want to sell, or you Mm -hmm. can ask a question to uncover what are the root problems. So how do you create that distinction? I actually think you're moving now from hiring questions to coaching because you can only go so far in the hiring process to figure out if somebody is curious, but then, and then you're talking really more about once you've hired this individual, how do you get them to ask those right questions of customers to get at the root problem that the customer has? And so I think you can really only go so far in hiring and you should have a nice, robust, several calls or several visits with this individual and get a feel for, are they naturally curious? Scientists tend to be curious. It's kind of a, it's a, it's part of what we do, right? In fact, most of the times when you're hiring scientists to be salespeople, you have to say to them right at the beginning, okay, John, you've been a great scientist for a lot of years. I need you to shift now from being a student of science to being a student of sales. Are you ready to do that? And that's part of the hiring process, right? Like you're going to continue to be a student of science. It's just what we do. We're geeky. One of my hiring questions is Star Trek or Star Wars. And if that one doesn't, yeah, exactly. But then the follow-up question is why? And so scientists tend to be naturally curious. They just do it. But now you got to get them to shift to being a student of sales. And then you're having a coaching conversation. What are the questions that you're asking? What's the difference between an open-ended question and a closed-ended question? And when do you ask an open-ended question? And when do you ask a closed-ended question? And the open-ended questions that we're asking are big open-ended questions. Tell me how your lab works and then be quiet. Tell me about your workflow and then be quiet. Tell me about the people in your laboratory and then be quiet. I really feel like that is once you've identified a high potential candidate, and brought them into the organization, that's a shift now to coaching. Because when you have someone who's not sold before, 
now you're talking about what's the next step. You know what? I had a really interesting candidate just last week and he has a PhD in biochemistry and he wants to go into sales and he worked as a produce manager when he was in college to put himself through college. And I said to him, I said, so if somebody walked into your produce department and said, I need some bananas, what would you say to that person? And his response was, what are you going to do with the bananas? Which to me was just great instincts, right? He didn't just walk her over to the bananas and go, here are the bananas. He didn't assume that she was just going to eat them. Like, are you going to put them in a salad? Are you going to dry them? Are you going to bake with them? What are you going to do? So his response was, what are you going to do with them? And that right there, great instincts. That's a phenomenal answer. And I think one of the things that you're hinting at with the sort of coaching conversation that we got into is that if you're talking about sales effectiveness in general, the best sales professionals focus on the customer versus themselves. And your point about you ask a question and then you shut that, that's how you become an effective customer centric seller. And that's the critical point of it because the object of the exercise is to uncover the core problem. And the way you do that is you ask a question and you be quiet. So that's a great, great threat in conversation there. I want to I want to loop this back into the overarching theme, which is how do you build an effective sales team or how do you build an effective sales professional? And part of that has part of that exercise involves planning. So it involves planning your territory, planning your day, planning how you approach customers. What are the things that you've seen work extremely well when it comes to territory planning, account planning, sales planning? If the intent is to build this high-performing team. In every in every salesperson, if you're going to keep salespeople motivated, they have to have enough room to run. They have to have enough high-quality customers or high-quality potential in their space in order to be successful. I I've seen again and again in different organizations where they the organization knew that they needed to carve out another territory, but at risk of offending the one sales rep that God forbid they should lose this one sales rep. And if I take this one account, they'll quit or carving out target markets where you leave a territory intact, except for three or four accounts that are even right across the street from the sales rep that work there. I think that when you are planning a territory or when you're planning territories or getting new territories, that you have to look at the good of the whole as opposed to the good of the individual. Going back to the conversation we were having before we started the podcast, that conversation about focusing too much on individuals, that one individual who's the super high potential sales rep that sells all the time, but is impossible to work with and makes everyone around him miserable. Or that individual who's been with the organization for 28 years and has tenure. I think there is always fear on the part of leadership to be careful not to offend the wrong people. So I think it's critical when you're building territories that you use some really good metrics and not just internal metrics, not just where you've been able to grow up to this point, but external information provided by companies that are the standards done in Bradstreet, where you're able to use SIC codes or NAICS codes to determine where the business is that you're missing and then building territories that have the potential to grow around there. So salespeople have to have they have to have somewhere to run or they're going to leave. So that would be something to consider. As far as planning territories or coaching reps on how to manage a territory, is that kind of one of the things you're looking at? 
I think first and foremost, you're coaching reps to have the right goals. My experience is that you have two kinds of managers and two kinds of sales leaders. You have those individuals who focus on the bottom of the funnel, the what's coming in tomorrow, what's coming in next week, what's coming in this month and this quarter. And that's important, right? And But then there's also the what's going into the funnel. And that's actually more important, right? The building the funnel and prioritizing building your funnel as opposed to emptying your funnel. And so the goal should be around the number of opportunities required. In capital equipment, you have to have somewhere in the order of four to 10 opportunities to sell a single system, right? But then you have to understand your buying cycle. Is it If you're talking about something that's a million dollar piece of technical equipment, that's a year, year and a half in the planning, right? So you can bring on a new salesperson in a new territory and know that that individual might not really start selling stuff for as much as nine months. And how do you plan for that? And how do you set expectations with leaders to say, look, I'm going to hire this guy in this expansion territory or this woman in this expansion territory, and she's not going to sell anything for nine months. And I'm going to need you to be patient. But then the goals that individual have to be around opportunity creation. Is it two opportunities a week? Is it three opportunities a week? And where are you going to go to find those opportunities? And now you're talking about geographic versus market, where's the growth going to be? And coaching individuals on where they should be spending their time to find opportunities to sell because then the sales will just, they'll happen. As I was listening to to what you were saying, you touched on a couple of things that lead into the uh, the next series of questions. But when you were talking about the Dun & Bradstreet and uh, Nate, as elements, right, to identifying and developing a territory. How much of that does competitive analysis also play into that? Depending on the market space that you're in, I think that it's critical that you're using independent market research. Scientists and technical folks are prone to confirmation bias, if not more so, because they believe in what they do. I would say that They often think they're, and sometimes they even are the smartest person in the room. It is critical that you use independent market research to understand where the business could be. Um, And we use a variety of different market research firms that tend to be to our space and then some that are more broad, but then you have to work with your product groups to determine where your product is actually going to benefit a scientist. You can't just throw things against the wall and hope that something sticks is critical from a marketing perspective. Um, Where are we going to sell? And then what are the things that we, and what is our right to win? And then what are we going to do to support not just our salespeople in selling, but then after the fact, our customers, once they've purchased it, if you buy a, if you buy a vehicle from any of the major vendors, And then you can't get parts and you can't get them fixed such that you can't operate your vehicle. You're done. Your customers are never going to come back to you. It's it's absolutely the same thing in our space. So what is your plan for penetrating and then supporting that market? And so really knowing your business at a high level is critical. But as you're going through that process, that is going to help you to define, really define 
who your customers are and where they are so that you can build those robust territories. So that's a great segue into the, uh, my next question was around, so you, you touched on leadership, you touched on the customer, you touched on your salespeople, right? So those are some of the key stakeholders, right? That are a part of your ecosystem. And when you were talking about, this is what made me ask this question. So you were talking about, so you have a, a sales cycle that could be a year and a half. You have someone that's new that it's probably going to be nine months before they're selling. And talk a little bit about how you engage stakeholders to ensure that you are helping to drive a successful sales team. Internally or externally? I think actually there's a little bit of both that you touched on. So whichever whichever you think are the most important elements, because you're the expert. And so we're looking to pick your brain. Okay. So the stakeholders within an organization, particularly in our space, and I'm sure it's this way in other, in other industries as well, sales, marketing, service, the technical support folks, we often have specialists who are customer-facing specialists that go out and maybe do demonstrations or work to develop applications after instruments are sold answer questions for customers that are more technical. So our salespeople can focus on finding the next lead. Someone else does the scientific explanation in depth. And every company manages those teams differently. Sometimes you will have those specialists and service and sales all reporting up to a single general manager. Sometimes you'll have field marketing people that are on those same teams. Sometimes all four of those teams will report to completely different people. And then you're getting into sort of really highly matrixed organizations. Breaking down silos is critical. Service is going to be metriced one way. Technical support is going to be metriced another way. Salespeople are going to be metriced a third way. And if those metrics are not in alignment, you create silos within your own organization and customers will see that and your customer service will suffer because of it. And Yeah, that's a big one, right? Is congruent goals and outcomes. And you're right. I think people see it right away. And I think that a lot of that has to do with what you mentioned earlier as well, which is another excellent call out is that confirmation bias, right? We all believe what we believe and we're going to go for it. And sometimes not having the ability to see the bigger picture. And I think that it's a great call out because as you're talking about building that ecosystem as a, as a sales manager, right? You, I think it's very insightful to be able so you're seeing all of that, and that's an important call out. You know what? I've had the benefit of actually, when, after I finished my MBA, I took a role actually in a field marketing organization, and I did marketing for a couple of years. And it has re- that that three years actually gave me a really different perspective on sales. And I'll tell you, I actually spend a lot of time explaining to salespeople why marketing does not serve marketing does not exist to serve sales. And at a very high level, marketing's job is not to create leads for you. That's your job. I'm paying you to go find leads. But salespeople often, I hear this refrain, I'm not getting enough leads from marketing. Marketing's job is to build brand awareness. Marketing's job is to ensure that when you knock on the door of the customer, that the customer's heard of you. So they say, great, you're with such and such scientific team. I've heard of you. Come on in and I'll talk to you. But it's not their job to serve the salespeople. And that was a really interesting takeaway from being from going from being a sales leader to being a marketing leader and then going back again and 
hearing that refrain from salespeople and having to take a stick to some of them and go, look, guys, you need to go find those leads. That's not marketing's job. And every salesperson listening to this podcast will disagree with me. Send them to me. I'll explain why. You're hitting on something that is a big hot button for me. My perspective is a little bit different in terms of the dynamics between sales and marketing. I think sales and marketing need to be in lockstep in terms of how you go to market. And, And I agree with your point. Marketing's job isn't to serve sales. Marketing's, my view, marketing's role is the voice of the customer that engages the sales team's curiosity to go back to the customer and you know, engage with them in a conversation. Absolutely. So, so that's really the dynamic. And I think, I, I don't think a lot of people in my experience have tied that together. And this goes back to your top of funnel, bottom of funnel conversation that we had earlier. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've encountered is that you have the operations team within an organization that's focused on the deals as they should be. But I think the big disconnect is they don't tie into how deals actually materialize. I obsess about the top of the funnel activity because the conversation often goes, I'm the C-suite or I'm a VP of some operational function and say, where are all the deals at? I'm like, here's what the opportunity funnel looks like. Here's what's broken. And here's what we need to fix above here. And this is how long it's going to take. And that's a tough conversation to navigate for people that don't really pay attention to what's at the top of the funnel. So my question to you, Carrie, how do you bridge that gap, that operational disconnect between deal volume and top of funnel activity and bring everybody together to understand what that pipeline really needs to look like to impact that right-hand side of the spreadsheet or the right-hand side of the column that everybody cares about? I'll tell you, I actually, what you do is you actually work backwards, right? And you use journal data. The nice things about operations folks is often they have strong backgrounds in organization. They have strong backgrounds in maybe engineering. They may have a finance background, but operations folks are always focused on numbers. How many can I build? How fast can I build them? Right. And so as a salesperson, and maybe it's because I'm a technical salesperson, right? We use data to make arguments all the time. We are less line. Certainly people buy from people and you have to honor people's feelings and you have to respect people's feelings. And salespeople in the technical world deal in, we deal in making sure that we are addressing our customers' fear as likely as any other sales group does. But we often use numbers and data and concrete examples to make that case, right? So you start with the conversation around, okay, so our average selling price is, and you want us to sell two instruments a month. Okay. So we look at the given salesperson, it's $150,000 sale. You want this individual to sell two instruments a month in order to pay themselves, pay the bills and grow. And so they have to sell two instruments a month at $150,000. We have to have in order to do that. And we know our sales cycle is six to 12 months. So in six to 12 months previous, we have to have 20 opportunities in order to sell those two because external data shows that you close one for every 10 and you close one for every 10 because people lose money, their projects change, something else breaks that's more important, et cetera. So it's not that you have a lousy salesperson, it's 
that's just how the numbers work. And you work backwards and work backwards. And you say, okay, here's how many opportunities. Okay, so now how many leads do we need? And we use external data to show here's how many leads you need in order to find these opportunities. Here's how many activities that you need to do to find the leads that create the opportunities. And you work backwards and then you hand them the numbers and you go, okay, so if it were you, how many customers do you think you would need to talk to in a given day in order to achieve this? And how many phone calls do you know you're capable of making right now and do all the other stuff that you have to do in order to make this happen? And how can we make sure that our salespeople are selling and not doing things like paperwork or chasing down instruments that have disappeared in the process of shipping or showed up broken or ever. All of the stuff that takes salespeople away from selling. And so those are the conversations that you're having with operations folks. And you have to be data-driven with those operations folks because that's what they respect. Uh, Carrie, this is great information. I think that it, it's extremely helpful to for, for our listeners to hear about how important it is to keep the other stakeholders at bay and allow the salespeople to do, actually do their job to be as successful as they can possibly be. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think we, we our salespeople are a resource just like anyone else in the organization is a resource. And it's important that we ensure that they're able to really focus on what we're asking them to do. I think that they're at a high level, people who are not sales professionals, I believe they don't really appreciate the level of just noise that salespeople sort through to find a high quality opportunity. And that noise takes time. And anytime you're asking salespeople to keep track of invoices or follow up on collections things or go in and just do a quick demo or go in and do a quick repair. Some of our folks are really technical and they can actually do their own repairs. And you have to prevent those people from doing those things because they'll do it in the service of the customer and in the service of all of the really good things. But instead of selling, they're doing service. Absolutely. And you want them doing what they're really hired to Mm -hmm. do and and where they add Mm -hmm. the most value to the organization. And I think that you cover some very important elements that we'll be talking about in the second session with you as we continue the masterclass. And of course, everyone will be able to hear this upcoming information on all of their favorite podcast platforms. And we look forward to them catching us on the next episode of Cascading Leadership. Harry, thanks for joining us. We will have you back for part two of the conversation where we actually dive into the customer-centric portion of the of the sales process, navigating stakeholders, navigating the complex sales. So there's going to be a lot more great conversation coming up. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.